0: Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 39. We're glad to have you back. Today we're going to be talking a little bit differently. We're going to be talking about racism. And as we prepared to talk about this episode, we've had some fun conversations, some interesting conversations. Believe it or not, this issue has uh, has been very important And the the past year, you know, this basically the entire time we've been recording this podcast, the issue of racism has reached crazy levels of awareness and discussion and cultural dominance, as it were, in the United States. And we've talked about it before. It's come up in episodes where we weren't even planning on talking about it because it's so prevalent that's what we want to talk about. We want to talk about racism in a couple of new ways that we think would probably be helpful. It'll be helpful, at least for us.
1: Yeah, and it will be helpful in part because as I talk about it to Brad, it's interesting the way that sometimes the way Brad phrases things, I don't quite like the way he worded it because it implies certain deferences to current social movements and things. And and the reverse is also true. We have a slight tendency in the way even we phrase things uh, you can get a sense of how we feel a little differently about it now i think in all of the important conclusions and ideas that we've said we are in agreement but there's there's something kind of at the the uh, emotional or social level of this issue that as we were discussing how we would go through this episode kept coming to the front and so we wanted to start with that and i'm going to let brad do it because i am a cold and unfeeling monster that's happy to <laughs> that's happy to look at an argument and and just consider the argument in its
0: own sake. <laughs> I'll take the wheel from here, monster. I appreciate that. Yeehaw! I agree with what you're saying completely, Dan. Except for the monster comment. That it's true. We we do we do tend to agree on on the principles on on the facts on the ideas behind those. But there is a strong emotional component to this discussion that we tend to feel differently about. And I wanted to talk about that before we proceeded because this is primarily an emotional issue.
1: Yeah, th- this may be the fundamental aspect. We'd like to think that we live in a world where your ideas drive your opinions. And that's just not the world we live in. That's the world <laughs> That's the world people think they live in. Uh, so often it's our emotional responses that are driving it. It's something that
0: that we've seen quite recently with the uh, trial of Derek Chauvin a whole year after George Floyd was killed and there was that video of him being killed. And and from the get-go, from day one, this was an emotional issue. You watch that video and you get an emotional response. You think about that police officer kneeling on his neck for nine minutes and you get an emotional response. When when the protesters were outside the courtroom where Derek Chauvin was being tried, their thoughts about the trial were not statistical, were not scientific. They were not calculating the evidence and, and looking at all the data and saying, well, let's let's see what we can find. No, it was an emotional response. They, they wanted him convicted of everything because of how they felt. And there's that strong emotional response that people had. And that's something that everyone to some degree or another in the United States has been affected by in the past year is this strong emotional reaction to the idea of racism being alive and well today in the 21st century because that's the idea that's being that's that's being proposed right is that racism far from being from being gone and taken care of is actually quite bad today i mean people have made the arguments in this past year that it's as bad as it was when there were the civil rights movement and whether or not you believe that you do believe something emotionally about how bad it is now and the injustices that are going on now and i get that because i've had that same emotional response in the last year where i've seen i've seen videos you know i i saw the video of the black i believe he was a lieutenant Earlier This year who was pulled out of his SUV just for asking questions for the police officer to get pepper sprayed and then thrown to the ground. And you can believe that I had an emotional response watching that video where I said, this is definitely wrong and it needs to stop. And that has an effect on the ideas that I have. You know, emotions carry into everything else that we do and, and they've carried into how I think about the issue. And that's something that's definitely affected me as I've talked to Dan about this issue.
1: And let me begin by addressing what some people will immediately think. They'll say, Brad, you got to get beyond those. Well, at this point, you'll get one of two views, right? You'll get Disney, trust your heart. (laughs) You know, your feelings are always right. Believe in yourself. (laughs) Or you'll get, don't let your emotions control you. Get over those emotional responses and see everything dispassionately. And I would say that both of those are completely wrong. I think that the fact that, Thanks, that you are, <laughs> you're welcome. Thanks for half validating me. Thanks for me. half validating you. That you should neither go with your emotions and trust your heart exclusively, nor should you try to ignore them, cut, cut those, those out, out and ignore right? them. Yeah. Because, because your emotions are in some sense a power. You, you need them to drive you. The proper response when somebody does something unjust is anger. I'm absolutely convinced of that. That will let you fight battles that you would not otherwise have the nerve or the will to fight. And the question is only, do they, do they need to be fought, right? Are your emotions justified to say, are your emotions rightfully justified here? In which case, yes, let that anger be a part of it. Let that anger push you to get out of your house when you might otherwise just sit on the couch and watch TV or something, right? You need, you need something to push you. And strong emotion can do that.
0: I want to add one more thing to this discussion of of the emotions that I've had and many others have had in the past year. And that's the other response that I've had. As a white man in the past year, there's also been a feeling of fear. Of fear that anything that, that I say or do can be misconstrued, right? That I have to walk a very delicate balance in order to not be construed as racist, right? right? That I read Ibram X. Kendi and I look at uh, white privilege, white fragility. I've been studying these things and looking at these things and listening to people's conversations and people posting things and talking about things in these articles. And there's this general sense of fear of this idea that if, if my whiteness is what causes me to be racist in the eyes of these popular ideas that have caught hold on an emotional level with everyone, including me, so this is kind of awkward for me to be on, on on both sides here, but including me, then then where does that leave me in terms of, of what I should do or say or act in regards to race, which is part of why I've struggled to talk about race. You know, I remember when we had our episode seven talking about race really for the first time, I'd mentioned this in the podcast. I say, I'm uncomfortable talking about this and it's hard for me. And that's why it's because of this fear that I don't have a legitimate voice because I'm white. And I know that's something a lot of people who have pushed back against this idea of racism have had that fear of being marginalized, of being marginalized, especially in terms of political discussion. It's interesting because everyone is having an emotional response to to what's going on. And I think, like me, a lot of people are having mixed emotional responses, you know, and these are just two types of emotional responses. There are many others because of how big it is because of how big racism has become in the past year in terms of political discussions, in terms of news coverage, in terms of water cooler conversations. You can't help but have an emotional response. Whatever that emotional response is, is going to become emotional, which is why what Dan's saying about trying to ignore those emotions or trying to ignore everything else is our both ideas are going to get you in trouble. What we need to do is take those emotions and, and use them effectively. Yes. And that's what we want to talk about here today, because it's especially if you, if you look in the context of, of George Floyd and Derek Chauvin, which is, which is nice because it is the beginning of this past year. It is, it is this past year in a nutshell, you look at what's happened and how people have responded you can see that time and time again, people are just relying on their emotions, whichever side it is, whether you were there and saying, hey, Derek Chauvin needs to be guilty on all counts, or those who were afraid that people would turn against police, that it would become mob rule, and therefore felt that Derek Chauvin should be acquitted or should only get a manslaughter sentence. In both cases, people were mostly acting from a place of emotion, not from a place of of rational thought, right? And if you ask most people what they thought about the case, most people weren't bringing up specific pieces of evidence. And that's because it wasn't about the evidence, it was about the emotion. And that's really the scariest thing about the last year, especially for me, someone who's felt those emotions, is this idea of that we've become so concerned about how this makes us feel that there is no place for rational thought in this new sphere. And that's something that we really don't want.
1: That is a really bad place for us to be. You need to aim those emotions correctly, as Brad was saying. You don't want to be angry at something that isn't true. You don't want to be upset at something that isn't happening. And if there is something terrible happening, you want to be able to identify it, be a rifle yeah, target. Yeah, you want to be able to accurately identify it. Yeah. In some ways, the fact that so many people are willing to do something is a good thing. That people are still capable of caring is, in, some, in, the, in the barest sense, good. And that people will do something. That if they perceive injustice, they are willing to do something about it. So often, I feel like that's not the case. And I feel like especially among, uh, and I, I think there's, this is in some sense a major divide between the parties. That often the people that, in the arena of race, these this last year we've been, tend to argue against, are at least driven enough to get out there, and to try and improve things.
0: They have an emotional response to injustice, and they're doing something about it, and that is fantastic. It is absolutely. C.S. Lewis
1: said something profound on this subject. He said, "The more you feel without acting, the less you will be able to act, and in the long run." the less you will be able to feel. I think there's something profoundly true about that. You want to act on your emotions when you have identified injustice, but you also need to make sure that it is actually injustice. That should be question number one. Is this, is anger warranted? If anger is warranted, what do I do about it? Sitting and doing nothing will eventually lead you to be impotent in the sense that you won't be able to do much at all at that point. And that
0: action has proved effective. George Floyd was not the first individual, black or otherwise, who was killed unjustly by police. You know what I mean? Who was, who was murdered by police officers. This is not the first time this has happened. But because of the attention it received and because of the protests and the response that people had, this case went differently than most of those cases in the past. You know, you can look at other instances of officers police brutality in the past where they were acquitted. Time and time again, police officers have been acquitted with large amounts of evidence against them, but because of what's happened in the past year, this trial was different. And and that demonstrates that power that it's been effective in terms of trying to correct even just this one injustice something is happening. Yeah,
1: we we immediately when our very first episode that we did on this podcast was an attempt to channel that anger in what we thought was the right direction. Because there are things that you should be upset about about the way the police operate. We came up with quite a list <laughs> and that we still think should change. And one of them is qualified immunity. A police officer is not somebody different than you and I. They do not have some special authorization to act in ways that are different than we do. And so that something we would do is unjust, but if they do it, it's fine. Mm-hmm. There is one moral standard that applies to human beings, and they are human beings, and they must live by it as much as anybody else. And on that point, Derek Chauvin received no benefits from his badge yeah, and shouldn't receive any benefits from his badge. He should be tried as a normal person I, I have such mixed feelings about the trial <laughs> the way that you described it as as murder I'm not sure if it was murder <laughs> but that he should be tried with that potentially on the table absolutely and you were saying the emotional responses to people to people reacting to the trial it bothered me so much that I ended up looking more and more into it even though I didn't want to I'm not I'm not a jury member there I don't have to have an opinion you know I don't have to declare him guilty, and I don't have the time to go through it. Guilty right, or not guilty. Yeah, and I don't yeah. have the time to go through all of the evidence and didn't, and didn't want to. But I ended up looking at more and more until at least I could feel comfortable with the verdict they gave. Not saying that I agree with it or I think it's the right verdict, but can I see how a reasonable person, someone I could talk to, not just someone driven by fear and social pressure, could come to that conclusion? Yes, I can. And that was enough for me because I, my fear was that the pressure of the mob convinced them, right? That the people outside mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the social pressure got to them. Now, is that what happened? It might be what happened. That might be true. I don't know. But I can see that it doesn't have to be true. And that's enough for me to give them the benefit of a doubt for now. That, that there is legitimate yes.
0: evidence to convict him of of murder. Yes,
1: there are reasons to suspect certain evidence that's given that was counter to that narrative, right? There are things that are presented as true in evidence that may not be true. Mm -hmm. And if you look at police trials in the past, there are times where there are straight up lies that are presented to protect police officers. And and it's not just police officers. Obviously, in every trial, you're going to get things that are (laughs) things that people claim are evidence that isn't. But really, really, there is a tendency in the police to protect their own, and and it makes sense. It's one of the systemic problems with policing we pointed out in our episode, the internal reviews and just the way it works. The there ends up being biases in favor of the police that shouldn't be there. But anyway, all that's to say that I, it's the kind of thing that kept me up at night. And I I watch a lot of politics. I can I can be very cold in terms of my analysis, pretty numb in a lot of cases but that haunted me i could not sleep thinking that this was simply mob justice now is it as i said it's possible it was mob justice that that the pressure got to them and that an appeal should happen and that a retrial would find something else but that's something that they will have to work out right that's not our not our job and i did not look at it close enough to say that's right or wrong. And in that,
0: Dan, you've you've made the case for what we're talking about this episode, where you had an emotional response to what was going on. You had this visceral fear about the idea of justice getting thrown out the window and us returning to a state of mob rule, which is something that a lot of people have been afraid of in the past year. The protests alone that have turned into riots have scared people. And the idea that a, a court case could be decided— because of the fear of a mob, is one that that a lot of people felt. You know, I don't think you were alone in feeling that.
1: Yeah, that's exactly the kind of pressure that would lead black people who were innocent to be convicted of crimes they didn't commit. It's the, exactly this kind of thing where you where you ignore the individual case, you end up with serious injustice. And-
0: but instead of just giving into that fear and deciding that that means that Derek Chauvin should should be acquitted or should only be convicted of manslaughter. You actually did go in and you dug a little and you found evidence that clarified it.
1: And again, I'm not saying that they, they came to the correct conclusion. I don't know. And that, I don't know. But but I can see why they would get there, how a reasonable person could get there.
0: Which is why we have juries, You know, which is why we have ev- evidence, which is why we have this process, even though it may not be quite the process we'd like. It's definitely better than mob
1: justice. Right. A jury trial is one of the most brilliant things that has ever been created by man. There is no greater political mechanism, in my opinion, of all the things we've ever come up with in the history of political theory. The idea of a jury to determine guilt has got to be one of the greatest. And for that to go down, I think it would take everything else with it. I don't think we get by without justice at the individual level. And the only mechanism we've found that can do that is jury trials. It's incredible. As a political theorist, I look at that and go, this is genius. This is, there's nothing better than this. Perfect? No. Incredible?
0: Yes. (laughs) I'm not a huge fan of the justice system, but the jury aspect of it is absolutely fantastic. I know someone uh, whose wife is in the process of trying not to be deported. She was trying to to become a citizen. She came to the United States illegally many, many years ago when she was much younger and got legal residency and was dealing with all these issues. And eventually there was an issue with the paperwork and she became at risk of getting deported. And she's been going through this legal battle for several years. And the court case that decides things is just a judge. There's no jury. They present to this judge and the judge decides. And at one point, and I may be getting some of these facts wrong, but at one point they're in a courtroom and they're with their lawyer and they're presenting the cases to the judge and the judge is having a really bad day. And the lawyer tells them this judge is just mad today and just deported the person before them and they present their case and the judge says, no, you're deported. You're going to be arrested right here and then you'll have to plead your case and go from there, which is crazy, right? Someone who's been who's been here working in the same job for years. All of this history, right? Has a family and kids here and all of this stuff. Been in the United States for too many years to count. It's ridiculous. Why well, can't count that high, clearly?
1: Um, <laughs> I was going to say, you can't reach, I mean, maximum we're talking, what, 110, 120. Surely, <laughs> surely you can that count old. that high.
0: <laughs> oh, my goodness. Never mind. <laughs> I meant I didn't want to do the math. But the case ends with with this judge deciding this and the lawyer arguing with this judge one-on-one for several minutes and convincing him to wait. Because the lawyer is like, I says, there's, there's no reason for you to, to rule this way. It makes no sense. The law is clear. But the judge was just having a bad day and decided for whatever reason to decide this way. Eventually, the lawyer was able to convince them and they were able to get another court date. And that sat with me ever since I heard it, that this family's whole entire life was in the hands of this one guy. This one guy said yes or no, and that was the decision, and it was done just like that. I mean, they can appeal and do other things just like any trial, yeah. but it was just this one guy. How is this justice? Like, where isn't even the semblance of justice? And so to go from that to actually having a group of individuals, especially a group of individuals who haven't been stuck in the judicial system, who are ruling day in and day out and may be biased because of all the things they've seen or how they were appointed, who appointed them, you know, all of these things. Yes. Instead, yes. just to come in as a normal citizen and say, look at this individual, look at the facts regarding their case, and make a reasonable decision.
1: And it has to be unanimous. Yeah. Right. That is such a high bar. It has to be unanimous. That's what makes it really work. And now there will be times where they they take someone down who shouldn't be and release someone who should be punished. But as far as a protection to individual justice goes, nothing else is better. And everything else is generally much worse. Which is why I'm able to now close the door on the Derek Chauvin case in my head, right? I think there were some things that should have been handled differently. Maybe an appeal is justified for a retrial. They should have moved it out of there. When Brad and I were talking about it, and what you would have to do to find a jury that wasn't in some sense biased, you would have to find people in other countries to be the jury members, right? You'd have to get it out of the country because so much politically is at stake, and so many people knew about it it made you know so well known, and then the way that they allowed testimony on the on just the sheer emotional impact in things, all of this is, gives good reason for there to perhaps be an appeal. But if that that appeal may very well fail, and even if it succeeds, they may very well arrive at the same conclusion.
0: And I took the joke farther, Dan, because people in Europe protested after George Floyd. You know, <laughs> people true. in Europe they had major headlines about the Derek right. Chauvin case. That really, what we needed is people, whether in the United States or outside of the United States are living in such isolation that they haven't read a newspaper in the last year. We need to find those people and, and fly them fly them out for this trial because-
1: Or fly the trial out to or them. Or fly the trial get out away, to them. Get away I, from I the... don't
0: know, but, but never has a trial had such media coverage, literally worldwide. Of the 7 or 8 billion people in the world, the number who have heard George Floyd's name- is crazy high. Yeah. It's crazy high. I mean, it is truly a worldwide phenomenon. So trying to have a an unbiased jury is a nightmarish task. I'm just very glad I was not the judge for that case or one of the lawyers.
1: Well, and partially out of fear for what might happen to you. And that's a terrible place to be in. That's why I think an appeal might be granted, right? If the judge should not have to be afraid and the jury members be afraid that if they rule wrong. There will be consequences to them. And yet there would have been consequences to them if they did rule differently.
0: Yeah, and, and that fact may alone be grounds for an appeal. The, right, the and appeal that was the root may, of my may fear. decide the same case, but that's the reason we have may decide the same outcome, but that's the reason we have an appeals process. When there are issues with a case, you can do something about it. Yes. Yes. Which brings us back to racism, and the power that it's had in the past year, and what we as ordinary individuals who are caught in this maelstrom of emotion and ideas and definitely mob mentality, that one thing I think most people should agree on is that this is not an easy place to have a calm, open discussion with someone. About a topic, I know because there have been times that me and Dan, we are very close, politically aligned. We're good friends who have a long relationship of having honest, easy conversations with each other. Have struggled to talk about racism just with each other.
1: Right, same religion, from similar parts of the world, from like, like yeah. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy, and yet
0: we've struggled to talk about racism because there's there's so much baggage attached to it emotionally. Which brings us to why we're talking about this, Dan. The reason we're talking about this is because, first of all, we need to be having these conversations. We need to change the way we're talking about racism. We need to be more comfortable having these open conversations which is why we're trying to have an over open conversation with you now, even though it seems a bit one sided. But we mostly blame you guys for not chiming in. <laughs> That's um, right.
1: It's entirely your fault. You could be
0: here. <laughs> but seriously, I feel like I'm just opening myself up here. But but I really want to. I want to see this change. I really do. I want people to be comfortable. Being uncomfortable and having these conversations about racism. And part of that is accepting that there's all this baggage and accepting that there's going to be some pain involved in having these conversations and that that's okay and that we have these emotions and we have these thoughts and ideas, but we need to temper those emotions and thoughts and ideas with facts, with data.
1: Get them pointed at the right things.
0: That's hard to do with this issue, but it doesn't mean it can't be done.
1: As a standing offer for anyone who's upset at the way the police work, please look at the many reforms that can happen. The drug war needs to be rethought. With that, the way that no knock raids work in a number of other circumstances where police and people are put into circumstances where it's likely that, that things can go south. Um, you can do a number of things. You can improve police training. Uh, I've heard recently some people proposing concrete ideas on that that are beyond me. I don't know the details of their training as it is, but but you can find now some people who've been considering it over the last year. Since George Floyd died, people who've been trying to figure out how you could improve the training to get them to be able to handle dangerous situations better in a way that isn't dangerous to the police officer. And I think all of these are areas where you can improve things and you would see better outcomes. And you can find more details with those in our episode on policing and on the drug war and what we think should change in those spheres. But that obviously doesn't address...
0: Yeah, and in many ways, Dan bringing up those issues is dancing around the main fact. And the main fact that underlies all of those is that racism is not the main driver of these problems. That's really what Dan's arguing, because if racism was the main driver then you should look at racism first and then look at those other things. And what we're arguing is that racism is not the main driver. And that's not to say that racism isn't an issue. It's an important distinction because there is racism that occurs. I at least am not just saying that the old classical racism of, you know, one, one bad apple, one racist cop, but there may be, there may be precincts. That are racist. You know, there may be areas of certain cities, certain states where racism is an issue. And, and is a primary issue. And, and yeah. is a systemic issue that needs to be addressed. What I'm saying is that if you look at the data and you look at it generally nationwide, the data does not seem to indicate, at least from the data that we have, that the primary issue is specifically in police brutality, in police violence against individuals, the primary cause, the primary issue behind it is not racism. It's something else. Racism is not the primary determining factor. It's not really even one of the top determining factors when you're looking
1: generally at the United States. Yeah, and let me let me walk you through a quick walk of how we got to that point. Because once George Floyd died, I was – obviously, there was tons of things that were happening then, and I started to look into these numbers. And I came to these conclusions before I heard any political commentator talking on this subject. Now, since then, a number of them <laughs> have come to the similar conclusions, but I want you to know it's because I told them. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Famous political commentators are not listening to me. They should have been. They would have got there faster. They would have got there faster. (laughs) (laughs) And all you have is my word, right? I've just come on here and claimed I'm faster and smarter than they are. And if you just listen to me. (laughs) But here's the data. I'm going to go through three studies really quick to kind of situate you here. This first one is titled, and this is the most painful of the titles A Multi Level Bayesian Analysis of Racial Bias in Police Shootings at the County Level in the United States. 2011 to 2014. We'll put the link in our episode description.
0: So after hearing that title, Dan, I've I've changed my mind. I'd like to go back to just feeling emotions and not thinking (laughs) about things.
1: Yes, studies are dry. And and if they're done well, they're emotionless because they're just trying to interpret data. They're just trying to give you some of the details. One of the things this study establishes is the need for better data on things like encounter rates and that kind of stuff. The main claim of this study is that even if you look at the county level and things, you're going to see a disproportionate amount of police violence against minorities. Disproportionate in reference to population. So a minority in some place makes up 10% of the population. You will find that the police violence against those minorities makes up more than 10% of all the police violence. It'll make up 20% or 30%.
0: Yeah, it's that statistical disparity that Kendi talks about.
1: Yes, and this feeds directly into Kendi. The second study I want to point you to is it was published in 2018. So that one was 2011 to 2015, I think the years were. It was 2011 to 2014. It was published in 2015. So this study is from 2018, and it's titled, Do White Law Enforcement Articles Target Minority Suspects? You said articles. Do White Law Enforcement Officers Target Minority Suspects? what this paper did is it tried to identify signs of significant racism at the level of individual police officers that would then be significant enough to show up statistically, right? So you've got enough bad apples out there to have a statistical impact that would then show up in the statistics. And that's what this this study is looking for. Because obviously we know there are bad apples out there, right? Occasionally you're going to have racist cops. If they're frequent enough, then that will really shape the overall statistics, right? Then it would it would actually show up. You'd be like
0: – In other words, is the reason for that disparity caused by racist police officers? Precisely. There's a, there's a disparity of police violence against minorities. Is that caused by racist cops?
1: In racist here, we mean in the traditional sense.
0: Yeah. We mean white law enforcement officers who are targeting minority suspects. Yes. To use random wording.
1: To use random <laughs> – the answer was no. The conclusion that they come to is no. That their data suggests that the problem is at more of a macro level. That these disparities are not driven by individual police officers making decisions based on racism, but they seem to be driven more by other things at a, the organizational level, right? This is right in line with what people argue today. They're not arguing that the problem is that every cop is a racist in the sense that every cop thinks blacks and Mexicans and others are bad people and they need to target them.
0: It's that there are are laws and policies in place on a larger scale that create situations where those minorities are going to just be naturally targeted. So that the police officers are not using their discretion. They're just doing what they're supposed to do and in the process of doing what they're supposed to do. These minorities are getting tired. These
1: outcomes are, yes, yes. These disparities and these minorities are being targeted. And so one final study that kind of wraps up this investigation as far as statistical data goes into individual cops being racist. This is titled Officer Characteristics and Racial Disparities in Fatal Officer-Involved Shootings. This was published in 2019. This was somewhat controversial when it came out because it actually made a claim that it didn't have the data to make, and so it had to retract or slightly adjust one of its conclusions but what i'm going to give you is the conclusions that it actually can make the adjusted conclusion that is the adjust- that is
0: well right. established by the facts instead of them stretching it a little
1: right right and and it's interesting if you want a fun statistical trip you should go and look at this go track this study down you can find it at the link that we'll post and you can actually see the feedback and the retraction and what they changed and why it's a it's a slight rewording yeah, it's, but it it's makes literally big just rewording it's crazy because it's almost like words have power <laughs> yeah it's almost like you need to be precise in this so, this is a quote from them. We find no evidence of anti black or anti Hispanic disparities across shootings. I'm going to pa- interrupt the quote for a second. They're looking specifically in this at the race of the officers and the race of those harmed in fatal officer involved shootings. This is right on the issue, you know, police shootings of, of minority people. Back to the quote. We find no evidence of anti black or anti Hispanic disparities across shootings. And white officers are not more likely to shoot minority civilians than non-white officers. Instead, race-specific crime strongly predicts civilian race. This suggests that increasing diversity among officers by itself is unlikely to reduce racial disparity in police shootings. In a nutshell, what the data showed was, if none of the policemen were white, or if all of the policemen were white, it did not affect the odds of a fatal shooting, and it did not affect the race of the people being fatally shot. There was no correlation between them, between the, the ethnicity of the officers and the ethnicity of those shot. So if there were zero white men involved, that had as much impact on who was shot as if all of them were white men, which is to say there's no correlation between the two. All of this has pointed police officers towards a new statistic that we don't have good data on. And that's the encounter rate with police officers. There's a disparity. It doesn't appear to be the racism of the cops. It appears to be something to do with the fact that black people and police officers meet far more often than white people and police officers meet. And if you look at it on a per encounter basis, then it looks very different than if you look at it on a per population basis. Per population, there's a massive disparity per encounter. We don't actually know. We don't have the data. The police are not tracking every time they talk to someone of a race, right? Yeah. <laughs> that would that would be a, that would be a weird thing to track. Now it might be useful to start tracking it, and maybe some places are now. But it's a, it would be a weird thing for people to track, like oh, I I talked to uh, a black man today, or a white man, or a Hispanic man. Like that's just <laughs> no. I pulled over seven people today. You don't you and don't journal like that, Dan. <laughs> I don't journal the race. That would look racist. But it turns out that would be useful data at this point, because what we want to know, what, what we need to know, really, is the encounter rate. But what we do know is crime rates. And the crime rate, which seems to predict encounter rate, which also would explain the disparity, and these three things seem to align, which is to say that in minority areas, especially in large cities, You have higher crime and that would correlate with the encounter rate that we don't have and thus the disparity, which is not proof, right? That's not a, that's not a, a well carried out study, but it is evidence. And it suggests that again, as we were saying with these other ones, that racism is not the factor here. It seems to be something in the way the police are doing their job in general that has them end up in these areas. And speaking towards evidence real quick, if you followed the George Floyd case, you know, with Derek Chauvin,
0: you'll see that evidence is not just about one thing, that Derek Chauvin was not convicted because they pulled out one of the phones that recorded the video. They played the video and said, prosecution rests, you know, enough said, your honor, and Mm -hmm. throw the phone down because that's not how evidence works. You know, you can't just bring one study and say, this conclusively proves my theory because Nothing is that conclusive. You know, whether you're talking about <laughs> Newton trying to prove gravity or anything else, it requires many different pieces of evidence, many different facts that we piece together to show a whole picture. And that's what you'll see here when it comes to these complicated issues, especially when you're looking at an entire nation with hundreds of millions of people many different police precincts, many different cities with many different demographics, that's a lot of data and a lot of factors that mm-hmm. need to be looked at to get a holistic picture. So so absolutely, the fact that you don't have a concrete answer is reassuring to me, Dan, because if you did, if you could definitively say this proves everything, I would say you're full of it.
1: Well, you can't. I mean, statistically, you can't disprove a negative. I mean, I mean, you can't prove a negative. You can't prove there is no racism, ever. With all the perfect data in the world, you couldn't prove it. What you could say is, it's not here, right? It's not in these things that we've looked Yeah, at. we're not it's finding not it in- here,
0: and we're not finding it here. We're, yes. We have yet to find it. Would be, would be a way yes. you would disprove it, is say, I'm trying to prove it, and I can't. And, you know, using I the I scientific method. Yes,
1: yes, exactly. And so, why is this important? Why should this matter? to the person who's out there angry at what's happened with George Floyd. We're looking for the rightful target of your anger. I mentioned that there are police policies that need to be improved, but that's not related to racism, as Brad was saying. But I want to go from here to Kendi's assertions of systemic racism, because Kendi is saying something different, right? He's looking for a different problem. Kendi will tell you that the disparity is racism that society should be such that all the outcomes are the same by population. And what data does he use to come to that conclusion? Well, the fact is that's not a conclusion drawn from data. That's an assumption you would choose based on logical reasons, presumably. Before you examine the data. Right. He's not looking at data and saying, look, there is racism here. He's saying, if there is a difference, if there's a disparity, relative to the population that is racism mm-hmm. and that's his definition of racism that's what racism is it's in that disparity and so something must be changed now if you like that definition that's fine my question to you would be what what does that have to do with racism <laughs> you know i thought racism was about this bias towards you know based on something as arbitrary as skin color against another human being that is entirely unjustified. But if you're telling me there's a disparity here, then you might want to know that disparities between groups of people are the norm. You take any two groups of of white people, divide them however you would like, draw random lines, pick two cities, pick two groups in different countries, and you will find disparities. There is not a way you can divide human beings unless it's – unless, I guess, directly by disparity. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Unless you measure for disparity. Unless you measure for disparity. There is not a way you can divide human beings where there won't be disparity. Because disparities come about because of many variables. And this this is such a fundamental, interesting statistical fact that it's critical to know if you want to look at Disparities and try and figure out why. There are going to be multiple variables. Asians, for example, are much more prosperous in the US than whites are. As a group, why would you say that disparity is there? Well, Kendi would have to say something like, they're better at being white than white people, or society is granting them some favors. But it turns out that wealth tracks really well with age. No surprise there, the longer you live, the more money you get to earn. And the Asian population, on average, is something like 20 to 30 years older than, say, the Blacks or Latino populations. Mm-hmm. They should be more wealthy. They're older. <laughs> you know, they've worked longer. Is there some injustice in that disparity? Maybe there is. Maybe it's just age. That's one variable. You could then look at location. People who live in the mountains make less than people who live in a port city. And there's there's kind of a hierarchy in terms of, of of how much you're going to make based on the kind of location you live in and its access to trade. What does that have to do with mm-hmm. it? Does Kendi take that into account? No, he doesn't. He would say racism. He would say the difference between a person's wealth living in a mountain and a person living on a coast, racism, when the difference is actually probably something to do with the fact that it costs more money to transport items. Than, yeah, yeah. Right? Like this is a this is basic reality of economics. And it is such a weak, claim to racism, that it should be discarded and discarded as rapidly as possible so that we can start looking at these things.
0: But because of the emotion that's taken place in the past year, Ibram Kennedy's ideas are being accepted at face value. Like that is how people are viewing the world is Ibram Kennedy's. Not because it makes sense, not because it's even helpful, because it's really not, but because- it feels good and it's popular and if you say it you win arguments one of the most effective ways to shut up your opponent is to bring up racism and so and so instead of looking at other factors instead of looking at even the causes for disparity there is a disparity with police shootings let's figure out why and let's deal with it. You know, if you look at those disparities, you'll realize as Dan hinted at earlier is there are systemic problems. There are laws that create major issues. And we've talked about drug laws before and drug laws are a great example of laws that disproportionately impact minorities. Absolutely. But if you're just looking at it as the disparity is racism, then you stop looking at a lot of those other things and at the benefits that they could have instead of saying it's just about the disparity, it's just about racism, in which case a solution could be just to have a quota for how many white people the police should kill every year you know that would solve the disparity yeah. just as easily if the police just killed more white people but that's not the solution people want you know what i mean but technically
1: it would yeah, yeah. F- it would meet all those requirements it would end racism by, by these measurements. measurements. i'm glad you mentioned uh quotas because quotas end up being so easily tracked and for in terms of disparities that that is often what's used right that's what people go to with affirmative action in these things exactly I just keep thinking if what I really want, and this is what I personally really want, I want to make life better for everybody. Mm -hmm. And how do we specifically do that for minorities in a part of town that, that you can look at the numbers in the FBI crime statistics, right? Crime is rampant in these areas. I don't think that's a disputed fact. And when crime is rampant in these areas, what that means is statistically minorities are committing more crimes than other groups, right? Hence the encounter rate, as I was saying before. How do you change that? Well, if you were only going to limit that question to racism. Then it limits your response. It limits your response. It limits what you can see. And it's gonna limit how much good you can do for these people and how much you could change that would really improve the world. And ironically, what would affect these disparities, right? What would what would actually change things? One of the big things that people conflate here is the psychological idea of implicit bias. People believe that Because of a variety of social psychological studies, that people automatically, that a white person is automatically biased against a black person. We're looking for the rightful place to put our anger. To quote The Incredibles, if
0: everyone's super, no one is. You know, if everything is racism, then really nothing is. You know, if everything's racism, then you can't focus on any actual racism. You can't focus on any true issue that is causing a problem that's not racism. It just obfuscates everything. And that's, yeah. and that's the idea we're really combating. We're saying that there is something that's happened in the last year that have opened people's eyes to an issue, which is good, but don't let that issue get in the way of reality. Of what is actually going on. You have to know what is going on in order to fix the problem. And if you decide before you look at the evidence what happened, then you're never going to see the truth. You take those feelings, you take that passion, and you use it to find the truth. You use it to find the answers that will actually help solve the issues. And that's when you're going to really accomplish some
1: good. As Brad was saying earlier, you have real power here. You have real power make sure it is used justly. Make sure you are finding the actual problems in solving the actual problems. With that in mind, what you would want is a multivariable analysis that looks at different spheres of life that can take into account all of the studies done on the subjects in these spheres. It could look at education, it could look at jobs, it could look at uh, you know, things related to poverty and, and criminal justice and interactions with the police and so on. And you can try and track those and put them side by side to try and find where systemic racism is occurring, where the system has a problem that's biased against a race because of the race, not for some unrelated third factor, but because of their race. Britain did that. We'll link this, the report from this commission. They got 10 people, nine out of the 10 are minority of some kind, and they looked at different spheres and they... They go through – there must be hundreds of studies referenced in this report. It's several hundred pages long. And they go through looking for systemic racism in the British system. Well,
0: I would say they were actually – they did a better job than that because they were just looking to understand the disparity. They said there is – because they weren't looking for systemic racism. They weren't – they didn't have – like Kendi did – the, yeah, yeah. The yeah. Problem, Confirmation. Yeah, bias. exactly. Yes. They yeah. already knew what the problem was. No, they said they were only looking at one problem, which is the disparity. They said there's a disparity in the UK with minorities. Let's find out why.
1: Yes, uh, you're exactly right. Because you have to account for the – if you want to say how much of the disparity is racism, you need to know how much of it is not racism. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's tricky. That requires – as we said, a multivariable now. So you need to be able to look at each piece that's influencing it and say it's influencing it this much. To do that, you have to run, you have to have studies that try and control for all these things. What they concluded is that they could find no evidence of systemic racism. Again, no evidence, right? This is not, there is no systemic racism. That's an impossible claim to make, but there is no evidence of systemic racism. And they have a incredible list of things that they think contribute to the disparities. And a lengthy list
0: of practical, real-life solutions of things you can do. And some of them we agree with, and some of them we don't. But more than anything, right. we're just excited to see a study that is legitimately looking at this problem, saying this is a real problem, this disparity, these people who, who are suffering, what can we do to fix it? Which means, first of all, figuring out what's actually causing the disparity, and then looking at what can be done.
1: Right. They. I don't know if they would accept or understand our our initial claim about disparities, that some of them are from such arbitrary factors. They're looking at the disparity as a problem to solve. But from that perspective, as Brad was saying, they they've got lots of suggestions, even though it's not necessarily driven by racism, as they found. And Their recommendations are, I think, really worth considering because most of them, if not all of them, could also be applied here. We may go into detail on it at some point if it's relevant. I'm no doubt it will be again at some point because this issue is not going anywhere. But for now, we'll simply point you to it and, and let you check that out yourself if you would like to. If there is systemic racism somewhere in there, then they missed it and you can engage them at that point where you think they missed it, right? You can look at this data and you can say in this area, there's a problem here that I know about. I've seen it. I know how it works. And then it can be corrected. And that conversation is what needs to happen. That's where, that's how we're going to identify problems and move forward. The fact that they didn't find anything doesn't mean it's not there. Maybe they missed something and you could go, you or some group of people, right, can go and they can correct them. They can say, look, This is wrong. What you did here is wrong. Here's why. Begin this discussion. Identify the problem. Fix it.
0: And with that, thank you for listening. This has been episode 39 of Rethinking Politics. You can find our podcast anywhere that podcasts are available. You can email us at RethinkingPoliticsPodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on our website at RethinkingPolitics.Podbean.com you can also support us by visiting our patreon which you can find a link to on our website it is now fixed and works properly and you can reach us on social media on facebook instagram and twitter you can message us with any questions or ideas that you have and we'll be happy to get back to you and with that we'll see you next week